Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. If we examine the number of deaths in this country attributable to behavioral causes, the number one problem is tobacco smoking, killing over 400,000 people alone. Can you guess what is number two? Welcome to our special series on healthcare policy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Schroeder. Dr. Schroeder is Distinguished Professor of Health and Healthcare in the Department of Medicine at University of California at San Francisco, where he also heads the Smoking Cessation Leadership Center. He currently serves as chairman of the International Advisory Committee of the Ben-Gurion School of Medicine and is a member of the editorial board of the New England Journal of Medicine. Welcome to ReachMD. Thanks. It's wonderful being with you. Now, Dr. Schroeder, after cigarettes, what is our biggest behavioral problem in terms of mortality? It's obesity. So all the pleasures in life, huh? Smoking and eating. <laughs> right well, up if there. I had to choose between the two, I'd certainly <laughs> often favor of eating. Choose but. for eating, huh? Um, yeah, I was watching some World War II stuff last night, and it was amazing. Every single scene. Everybody smoked. And everybody everybody smoked. smoked. It's really impressive that how different it is. So how did we get into this mess? Which mess? Which mess? Well, not the smoking mess, because that seems like it's getting better, but the obesity mess. Well, the smoking mess may be getting better, but we're still killing 440,000 people per year from smoking. So we don't want to rest on our laurels. It's better than it used to be, but it's still a huge tragedy. Mm -hmm. But I presume you're asking about being overweight. Yes. So that's a factor of really two things. One is we're less active. So our ancestors were either farmers or peddlers, but they were very active. They were walking around doing stuff. Now we sit at our desks, we look at our screen, we fiddle with our blackberries, so we're not as physically active. We drive cars, we don't walk, and then we eat more. So you go to a restaurant, the sizes are bigger. When I was growing up, the usual Coke was six to eight ounces. Now you can get them for 16, 24, 36 ounces. Fast foods, as you have both parents working now, it's much more common to go out to fast food restaurants, where again, the portions are supersized. So it's a combination of exercising less and eating more. And when you do the simple math on that, that means people are getting bigger. Yeah, we were just joking just before this show, actually, here in the studio, that even though we needed to speak to somebody just one office down, it was easier to call or to email than actually get up and walk over there. So, Our staff here, I urge them, we're on the fourth floor. We never take the elevator. You can engineer activity into your daily life, if you just think about it. Now, we've talked about both the tobacco problem and the obesity problem. Are there similarities between the two? There are. Both of them have to do with things that we do that bring us pleasure, that are hard to stop. Both of them start when people are young. Both of them are relatively recent. Smoking really didn't come about until we were able to mass produce cigarettes at the turn of the 20th century. And the being overweight has really started probably in the middle part of the 20th century. Both of them are bad for your health. Both of them have industries that do heavy advertising. I mean, if you're a kid or if you're a parent of a kid and you watch morning television on Saturdays, it's all about Fruit Loops and candied cereals and candy bars and things like that. There are major regional variations, so it's much more common to be a smoker or to be heavy if you live down south than up north. They're also now linked to class. If you're poor, you're much more liable to be a smoker. You're much more liable to be heavy. And finally, they're hard to treat 
And doctors in general don't do a very good job in treating them. What can we learn? And clearly the smoking example isn't perfect, but certainly we have had some success there relative to obesity. What can we learn from our success in smoking to help decrease the rates of obesity? Well, there are two critical advantages that people involved in helping people smoke have that helping people lose weight don't have. One is that there is a secondhand smoke, and non-smokers don't like that. Mm. And so they're able to get laws and regulations to say, don't smoke near me, and we're going to make the workplace smoke-free, and we're going to put a tax on a pack of cigarettes. And so all of that is hard to translate into helping people lose weight. The second thing is that Nicotine is one of the most addicting substances that man has known, and there are receptors in the brain that when you smoke, more of them show up and basically say, feed me, feed me that nicotine. It's, it's really good. It's, it feels good. There are no such chemical tools that we can use in the form of nicotine replacement therapy. So if you're a smoker, I can give you a nicotine patch or a gum we don't have something like that in the food category. A final thing is you can stop smoking, but you can't stop eating. So those are differences. But there's some things that we can learn. I mean, we can control the environment in which people work and live. We can get Coke machines out of schools. We can make neighborhoods easier to exercise in. We can get the message out that smaller portions may not be bad for you in fact, are really preferable. So there is room, but I think it's going to be harder to make the kind of quick progress that we've made on smoking, where we've really had a major decrease just in the last 40 years, and translate that into helping against uh, being overweight. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Schroeder. We're discussing the obesity epidemic and how changes in healthcare policy may begin to turn the tide. So you brought up a couple interesting points there, Dr. Schroeder. Clearly, there's no anti-food agent that can block the receptor so we don't eat, as there is with nicotine. But certainly, some of the chemical pathways are the same in terms of increasing dopamine in our pleasure centers in the brain from, you know, a good French meal compared to a camel cigarette. There are some chemical similarities. Is there any way to target that to try to treat obesity? Well, I don't know if you can target kind of selective foods, you know, we have an anti-sucrose preceptor. Um, (laughs) But there are policies. I mean, right now, our agricultural policy subsidizes growing corn and soy, which gets translated into dietary sugars. We don't subsidize the growth of vegetables or tomatoes or fruits or sort of things like that. We also, in inner cities, you know, in, in poor areas, you can't get as much fresh fruit or fresh uh, veggies, and yet you can get all the cigarettes and alcohol that you ever want and all the lottery tickets. So how we market food, we can do something on. We can do counter-marketing, maybe. And I've noticed a couple of ads showing up now or urging kids not to be seduced by the clarion call to the fast food stores. But I don't think we know as much yet about how to help people combat weight problems as we do about how to help smokers quit and how to persuade kids not to start smoking. The other thing is that 
it's not as clear that the food industry has been as duplicitous as a tobacco mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. And there are all these papers that have been uh, shown that resulted from suits to show that the folks making cigarettes have been systematically lying about the damage that smoking does to you. We haven't gotten there yet with colas and fried chickens and that sort of stuff. What do you think about, for example, in New York, sort of legislating the whole trans fat ban in in New York City? Is that something that we'll see more and more across the country? Well, trans fat is a very special quality in that this is an additive that clearly increases the risk for heart disease. I think you're liable to see more of that. Actually, the town that I live in is called Tiburon, a little town in California, and it was the first town to ban trans fat in uh, restaurants. The other theme that is very reasonable is labeling of calories. So if you're going to a franchise restaurant, it would be reasonable for you to see on the menu how many calories were in a Whopper or a Big Mac, and then people can make their own choices. Right now, I think people tend to underestimate how much calories are in a 32-ounce Pepsi. And certainly things that you would think would be low-cal, like salad, often at these places, is full of fat and calories. And it depends what kind of dressing you put on and also how, how much dressing. But it's also important to couple what we do on the intake with uh, exercising. And it would be nice to reintroduce exercise into our daily routines in a way that I think could be done, are done in some parts of this country, like Davis in California, Portland, Oregon, both of which are very bicycle-friendly cities, Mm -hmm. and many of the cities in Europe where you see a lot of people walking and biking. Not so much here. Yeah. Is there something else besides just increased physical activity that the Europeans do that we can learn from? Certainly every time I visit Europe, I'm amazed at, even though they clearly have had an increase in their weight, that they look a heck of a lot better than we do. (laughs) You go to a European restaurant and you order a meal there, the sizes are smaller. And for some reason, we expect... Maybe we get a better buy in terms of bottle food per dollar, but I think we have to sort of reconfigure what we think is a healthy meal and a healthy size. Well, that's going to take some changes in our culture, but I think it's possible to make progress. So moving from policy issues more to just what we can do in our own practices, any tips? Most of our listeners are primary care docs out there. What can we do to help the obesity epidemic? Well, one of the things that I found helpful is to help patients just build in exercise into their lives. One of the things I tell my patients is if you go to the mall, don't drive around and around looking for the closest parking spot. Park as far distant as possible, and then you'll walk to the store and walk back. Climb stairs instead of taking elevators. Try to go out for walks. There are things that you can do that don't require huge changes in in lifestyle, but when added up over the weeks and months can actually help you lose calories. Do you think that it's reasonable to have physicians talk about that at every single visit? Well, it depends what else is coming on. (laughs) I mean, if someone's having crushing chest pain. Right, right. Maybe maybe not in the moment. But But it would be nice to make sure that it's on the problem list. And one of the the things that Kaiser, I don't mean to sound like a salesman for Kaiser, but Kaiser has reduced its smoking prevalence down to 9% of its adult population here in Northern California. And one of the ways it's done it is by putting smoking as a vital sign, by having on the problem list, by having various signs, 
by having all the staff know that they're there to help smokers quit. Knowing that weight is an issue, offering people the chance to get into various kinds of groups to help them with kind of support on that, I think it's going to take a lot of different ways to help people lose weight, and it's going to have to be done on a very, very much of a, of a prolonged basis. And whether it ought to come up at each visit really depends, I think, on what the patient wants and also what the other issues that are coming up at their visit are. We've been discussing healthcare policy issues related to the obesity epidemic with Dr. Stephen Schroeder. Thanks so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome. I'm Dr. Leslie Lund. You've been listening to our special series on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.